Hello there, this is Mark Bauerlein with another conversation. Before we get to it, a word about one of our sponsors. Located in the foothills of Wyoming's spectacular Wind River Range, Wyoming Catholic College, an accredited four-year Great Books Institution, is built on the ancient Western tradition of the liberal arts and the freedom of the American West. The college offers its students an immersion in the primary sources of the classical tradition, the grandeur of the mountain wilderness, and the spiritual heritage of the Catholic Church. Students experience the illumination of imagination and intellect through the great books and traditional disciplines, literature and philosophy, mathematics and theology, science and Latin, and an outdoor program second to none. The college celebrated an in-person graduation with its seniors last year and welcomed its largest freshman class ever this year. Learn more about the college's unique space in the world of American higher education at wyomingcatholic.edu. We have with us today Christopher Kazor. He is professor of philosophy at Loyola Marymount University, uh, written many things. He's been in our pages at First Things Before. Uh, his many books include The Seven Big Myths About the Catholic Church and The Seven Big Myths About Marriage. The new book, co-authored with Matthew Petruzek, is Jordan Peterson, God and Christianity, The Search for a Meaningful Life. Welcome, Professor Kazor. Thank you, Mark. Great to talk to you. All right. All right. Now, your section of the book, you divide it up. Uh, between the two of you, and you have a nice introduction from Bishop uh, Bishop Barron, uh, but your section of the book is a commentary on Peterson's lecture series uh, on YouTube uh, on the psychological significance of the Bible. And one of the opening questions you pose is how uh, a psychologist with no no biblical training uh, could and no you know no philological work, a little historical. Uh, study of of the ancient world. How could he have become the most popular biblical commentator in the world? Uh, so before we get into commentary, do you have any explanations for his popularity? Um, I do. I've got some initial thoughts, at least. I mean, I think a big part of it is that he's willing to say in public what many people think in their hearts, but lack the courage to say in public. And I think that that is something that really stir something in everyone. Because I think when people do public acts of courage, it really is a sort of, um, what would you say, an attractive icon for people to emulate and to, uh, you know, to follow. And so, you know, and his controversies have included so many different things, but I'm thinking in particular here about the radio interview or the TV interviews, rather, he had with people. Very, very... Um, unsympathetic interviewers who are grilling him and trying to trip him up. And and he acquitted himself so well, and he was so articulate and calm. And and I think that was something also that was a, a great um, interest for people to see someone under pressure like that and not responding just with slogans or with, uh, you know, ad hominem attacks in return, but rather in a very uh, dignified and reasonable way. So, so I think there's a lot of things that, that people find attractive in him. And one, one final thing I'll mention is this sort of attempt to combine uh, scientific and empirical reasoning on the one hand with an openness to poetry, to mythology, to philosophy, and to theology on the other hand. So you get lots of people who just want their science and ignore the rest of the humanities and the literary. And then you get people that are more in the philosophical theological camp who don't really focus on the science, but he brings them together in interesting ways. And so I think that kind of interdisciplinary approach that he takes in the biblical lectures is part of what makes the lectures so appealing to people. Yeah, he uh, has never, 
as far as I've seen, he's never patronizing about religion. And it's unclear whether he's religious. I mean, that, that, that's one of the, we'll, we'll talk about that in, in, a, in a few minutes. But he doesn't have the standard academic scientist attitude toward religion as the, uh, as the belief system of immature minds. Never exactly. said that. No, that's right. That's right. And I think he recognizes in this tradition, uh, not just uh, not just a something that appeals to the masses, but something that really is, properly speaking, intellectual. So, you know, in his writings, I don't see any in, any evidence that he's read people like Augustine or Aquinas. But Kierkegaard is someone that that he clearly has read. And I think that just he himself has a sort of respect for these these traditions, and I think it's based partly on evolutionary considerations. So anything, any story that's told for generation after generation has to have something about it of perennial value. There must be something in the story that's relevant for the human condition generation after generation. Otherwise, it'd just be a forgotten story. And so he sees these, these stories as very powerful. And one of the great services I think he's rendered is to make these stories uh, to help people to reconsider them. So in the in the comments on YouTube, you find lots of people that are atheists, agnostics, nuns, who say, you know, I thought the Bible was just a bunch of old stories told by illiterate and ignorant people. But now, after your lectures, Dr. Peterson, I can see that these stories have an, a great depth and are incredibly valuable for uh, searching for wisdom and insight into human living. Yeah. And so that's a huge... Uh, service I think he's done to people of faith. Yeah, yeah. Uh, how did you first come upon the videos and what were your first impressions? You know, I don't remember exactly how I first came upon them. I'm guessing maybe I saw that interview he did with Kathy Newman, I think it was. Yeah. And maybe I started looking into his stuff after that. Um, I guess what I found most fascinating about the biblical lectures were that it was pretty clear that they weren't totally planned out. That is to say that he had some questions he was going to consider, but it seemed pretty clear that he was thinking on his feet. He was trying to think through these issues. Mm -hmm. And I found that very interesting because as a, as a professor, you know, you go into the classroom and, you know, you can come in there kind of with the thing that you're going to say and you sort of, it's a canned whatever that you say about whatever and, and you, you spill it out there. But his approach was very different. It seemed much more speculative and it was for me quite engaging to see someone thinking on his feet and really moving forward with new insights just as the moment ar arose. Yeah. So, so I thought that was, that was neat. So it made me interested to see, well, he's, he doesn't know where he's going. And so it made me interested to figure out, well, where is he going to go? What, what's going to happen here? Now, he, he opens with Genesis, logically enough. And, of course, we have the big question immediately on the table about the book of Genesis and scientific geology and Darwin evolution. Uh, how does Peterson open by finding no contradiction between the book of Genesis and science? Yeah, I don't think he'd put it quite this way, but I think he more or less does the same thing that the Catholic Church does in saying that to interpret uh, any book of the Bible, it's really essential to understand the context and the genre of that book. So if you look at Genesis and you try to interpret it as a text for or against evolution, that's a little bit like reading Genesis looking for whether it's for or against using an iPhone. 
mm. you're like searching really carefully and like, well, is it for or against iPhones? Like, it's not about iPhones at all. It just can't be, right? It's written thousands of years before anyone had an iPhone. And it was written thousands of years before anyone was either for or against evolution. Now, now, now Chris, I, I have to interrupt because I told sure. my son that the Bible forbids him to use cell phones. Okay. Oh, that, that's that's in there. You have to have okay. that special, okay. yeah, Straussian reading where you look at the <laughs> beginning and the end. It's it's right in the middle there somewhere. But um, okay. But yeah, I think, you know, his, so what he does, Peterson does, is he puts it in conversation with um, the Babylonian stories of creation. And I think that's 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 right, that the story of Genesis historically was meant as a rival story to these other stories that were circulating in the ancient world. And so the point of Genesis, if you put it in that context, is, is really brought out and made more clear. It's not for or against evolution. The point is to say that the universe is orderly, that the universe arises from a mind and not just a chaotic battlefield, and that when we understand it in that way, when we understand the you might say the poetic elements of Genesis, then we can really see the insights that it has to offer. And I think these these uh, Dawkins types who want to read Genesis as if it's a text against um, evolution, that'd be a little bit like reading Shakespeare's Sonnet 18, right? And he says, shall I compare thee to a summer's day? Um, rough winds do shake the darling buds of May, and summer's lease hath all too short of date. So, you know, imagine you thought Shakespeare was providing a weather report, right? Yeah. And you look in the almanac and like, well, in May, there was no rough winds. Shakespeare, you're horrible at uh, telling us about the weather. Well, yeah, but he's not yeah. trying to tell us about the weather, right? It's yeah. not, Sunday 18 is not a weather report. But at the same time, he is allowing, there is truth here that it's not just metaphor. It's not just story. It's not just a fanciful, figurative way, way of thinking that there there actually are are real truths, and I I know it's it's that, that that's sort of the hard part how we work that out. I mean, what does he say about the the literal, the literal reading of the Bible? I mean, is what what you implied a moment ago? Slow down. No, no, no. Literalism is wrong. It's the wrong approach. Is that right? Well, I think what Peterson's providing is not a literal reading of Scripture, but what the Church Fathers would call a moral reading of scripture. So he's reading it in order to not find out what happened yesterday, but to figure out what we ought to do today. And he calls this the psychological reading of scripture, but it's it, so someone like Origen or Augustine would call it the moral reading of scripture, where you're reading, for instance, the story of Cain and Abel. And the question before you isn't, well, you know, where exactly did, you know, Cain kill Abel and what are all the uh, you know, historical basis for this, if any. And that, those aren't the questions you're asking. You're asking rather, this story is telling us something fundamental and true about the human condition. And the truth is that even brothers become envious and jealous of their brother. And what you do with this envy, what you do with this jealousy is utterly important for dealing with human life. That is to say, we, we all get jealous. We all get envious. How, how do you deal with that? What, what do you do with that? And the story of Cain and Abel is, you might say, jealousy gone, gone bad, the, how envy can lead to even more problems and sins. So Peterson's way of thinking about the story is, again, not seeking the historical literal sense, but rather seeking what the church fathers would call the moral sense. And that is incomplete. That's imperfect. But it is a true and legitimate way of reading scripture, at least in the Catholic tradition. Yeah. Now, as, as we mentioned, 
uh, Peterson doesn't go into ancient languages. He doesn't follow uh, etymologies of words. Do you think this is uh, a real drawback or we can just say, you know, Peterson's doing something and we appreciate for what he's doing. Uh, that is there, are there things he really misses in the, the philological thinness? Well, yeah. I mean, I don't think Peterson he would, would say that he's a scripture scholar. In other words, he's not putting forward these lectures as, well, uh, you know, N.T. Wright has his interpretation of scripture, but I have my interpretation. And given my scholarly research, you know, I think N.T. Wright is, is wrong about this. I mean, he's not putting himself forward in that in that vein. And I think that's fine. I think that's fine. I think that that it would be a terrible shame to leave the Bible only to scholars of the Bible, as if no one is allowed to say this, no one's allowed to read it or talk about it unless they have the requisite degrees. But on the other hand, I think there is something to having those requisite degrees and to having the uh, skill in those languages and the cultural context. I think all that can contribute to a, a richer understanding, but but to reduce the biblical text just to the historical critical reading, I think that's a big mistake. And I think it's a mistake that uh, has actually harmed uh, churches in the 20th century. And hopefully we're moving beyond that now. Uh, given given the background of the controversies over pronouns and, and, and gender and trans issues that really propelled Peterson into the public eye, what does he say here about the creation of man and woman? You know, interestingly, he doesn't link that up to a discussion of trans issues. Right. Um, and so he doesn't really explicitly link them up, but, but there are other thinkers to do. So in a way, Pope Francis links those things up, where he said on several occasions that part of appreciating the good of creation is to love our own bodies as created. Hmm. We should love ourselves as created beings, and we should love ourselves as we're created, as male or as female. So Pope Francis, in his own way, has really done more in terms of linking these two things together. But, but for Peterson, at least if memory serves, I don't think he explicitly appeals in any way to Genesis to deal with uh, issues of transgender um, you know, identity. Mm -hmm. Rather, what he says, as you probably know, is that because the government should never force or compel speech, that there's something seriously wrong with bills that would require someone to speak to another person in language that they don't agree with or they don't accept. He rather thinks that, you know, it's not the government's job to compel speech and force speech. Uh, let's get to the fall. What does he say about original sin? Well, that's interesting. I don't think he really talks about the concept of original sin uh, at great length. But I think the idea is something like this, that the story of the original sin is a story that's illuminative for every age and really for every person. So if you look at, for instance, the eating of the fruit, well, what exactly is this, right? What is this talking about? Well, the fruit is what? It's from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so it's a symbolic, poetic way of talking about complete knowledge. In other words, if I say to you, I have knowledge of the United States from coast to coast, well, I'm saying I have complete knowledge of the United States, right? Total knowledge. So to say you have knowledge from one extreme of evil to the other extreme of good is another way of saying you have complete knowledge. You have, in other words, divine knowledge. Hmm. So the temptation to eat the fruit is the temptation of Adam and Eve to become divine, to seek to become divine on their own terms. Mm -hmm. And this, in a way, is the original sin even recognized by atheists. 
So Jean-Paul Sartre famously said that the that man is the desire to be God. That's a right. weird thing for an atheist to say, but that was his view. Man is the desire to be God. In other words, we all want to replace somehow replace God with ourselves. And so this is the original sin. This is the distinctly human sin that and it's it's a sin in a way that's present in every sin because anytime I want to make myself God or anytime I want to sin, say steal something, what do I want? Well, I want my will to be done rather than God's will. I want to be ultimately the one in control. I want to be God. So I think Peterson's way of thinking about it is a fruitful way to say that the story of Adam and Eve, whatever our view is about the history, whether we think every word of the Bible is historically accurate in every single detail or not, we can see, hopefully see, that the story has a sort of universal archetypal value. Let's pause for a moment to ask if you were looking for a Catholic university where the greatest works of Western and Catholic tradition are the foundation for learning, all in an environment that is faithful to the magisterium. That's the University of Dallas in Irving, Texas. Recommended by the Cardinal Newman Society, the university offers an exceptional liberal arts education with undergraduate and graduate programs in arts and sciences, business, and ministry, as well as a campus in Rome, Italy all of them preserving the wisdom of the past while preparing students for world-changing futures. Academically excellent, always faithful. Apply today at udallas.edu. Uh, next, the Cain and Abel story. You, you touched upon that a few moments ago, but how does, how does Peterson understand this, this first killing? Yeah, yeah. So he thinks about it in terms of uh, rivalry and in terms of envy. So his way of thinking about it is that uh, Cain kills Abel ultimately because Abel was able to transcend the limitations that he had initially and to become something great. And that was something that his older brother just couldn't handle. So I think when we think about the Cain and Abel story, it's important to put it in terms of the uh, ancient world where the oldest son had a sort of pride of place. Right. The oldest son would inherit the land. The oldest son was going to be working with his father. And 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 so there was a sort of sense in which, you know, like in a kingdom where if you're the oldest prince, right, you're the one who becomes the next king. And so in the story, you have a reversal, right, where you have Abel, his sacrifice being accepted. So the one who should have been first, his sacrifice wasn't accepted, but the one who was second, his was. And so this causes, obviously, in the story, this unbelievable envy, which leads eventually to murder. So the story, again, has this archetypal significance where we may not have a brother, but all of us have at various times become very envious of others. And the question is, well, what do you do with that? Do you use this as a prod to develop yourself and to grow? Or is this cause for you to shatter your own ideal? That is to kill your brother. Yeah. You know, the background of a lot of this is that Peterson is able to draw upon thousands and thousands and thousands of hours of clinical experience. He's listened to people. He's been part of studies, I recall one, he was talking about, uh, I think when he was at Harvard, he was studying a lot of troubled young men as part of his, his clinical studies. And he just sitting and listening to very troubled people. He, he, he says that sometimes, I have heard things you wouldn't believe people say behind closed doors. And, and so when he talks about envy, you feel the authority 
of someone who has seen the way envy can tear people up, lead them into awful, awful actions. I mean, in one debate, I remember Michael Eric Dyson, this uh, sputtering fool, uh, is uh, talking about Peterson, accuses him of being an angry white man. He says, you need to learn to listen, to listen. And I think Peterson missed an opportunity there because he said, I, I've listened to thousands of people. I've logged thousands of hours sitting there listening to them as part of my, my professional job. And that when he's talking about something like Cain and Abel, he's, he's seen up close. I'm sure he's seen brothers who wanted to kill one another in his own, in his own work. Do you feel that authority when he's speaking? You know, that's a really good point, and it's one I hadn't really thought about, but I do think that his clinical practice really does inform his other work, and how could it not, right? How could those, whatever, thousands and thousands of hours listening to people in crisis not, in some sense, inform your work? And so, in a, in a weird way, he has a kind of experience that very few other kinds of people would have, but I do think uh, priests probably have that kind of experience. I mean, imagine yeah. you're a priest in confession, and you're hearing you know, I hate my brother, I can't, you know, he got the bigger inheritance and dad always loved him better and yeah. that stupid SOB, you know, I mean, I'm sure you must hear all kinds of things like that. Yeah. So he has yeah. this sort of access to people's weaknesses and vulnerabilities and vices that I think, you know, probably someone's not going to share with me, but they would share with the psychologist, they would share with a priest. Yeah, and you know, in one of Chesterton's Father Brown stories, uh, a criminal is trying to shock this little Father Brown uh, figure by telling him stories of human depravity and, and evil. And Father Brown, at some point, I mean, the police come in and intervene, but Father Brown says, don't you think I have heard everything? That there's nothing you can't tell me about human evil that I haven't heard in the confessional for yeah. years and years and years. So yeah. uh, you're, you're right, you're right. Uh, and also, uh, you, and you, you mentioned this, Peterson himself has had a lot of personal suffering. Uh, what, what is some of that experience he's gone through? Well, he talks about it in his latest book called Beyond Order. He talks about his unbelievable medical problems. I mean, he just has really one thing after the other and medications that have the opposite effect from the one that they were prescribed for. Uh, terrible side effects of medications, and then uh, other terrible problems. Like his wife uh, was diagnosed with stage four cancer, and he was told, at least on two occasions, that she was about to die. So he, you know, he hmm. prepares for her death. I mean, things that are really uh, unbelievably difficult, real, real trials. So I'm grateful that he has, uh, you know, weathered these things at least to a degree, and and is able to now continue to do some productive intellectual work. But yeah, the things that he's gone through, I wouldn't wish that on my worst enemy. I'm just absolutely harrowing, hellish uh, experiences. You know, he uh, went when all the celebrity was just off the chart, and he was appearing all the time in these contentious interviews. I actually suspect that he he's got to crack. This is too much for any one person to take. He goes day after day sitting down with interviewers who treat him with such, uh, uh, such contempt, 
sometimes and and mistrust and suspicion and he's very good at, at listening and taking it and simply trying to respond but I thought you know something he he's no one I think can go from this academic background you know he's a he's a clinical psych psychologist scientist there at, at the university no, no one can go through this and not start to suffer uh, some, some psychological damage and he gets hooked on some painkillers or opiates no i think I, what happened it was that when his wife was uh diagnosed with stage four cancer and you know was almost dying and such he went to his family doctor and said you know for obviously this is an unbelievably trying situation i have all this anxiety etc and so the the family doctor yeah gave him this prescription i forget what it was for but basically yeah that he didn't it as I understand it, it was the case that it basically didn't have the proper effects. So he's like, look, you gave me this medication. It, it really didn't do anything for this terrible anxiety I'm suffering. So then he got a higher dose. And basically that led over time to this sort of, uh, you know, problem, you know, with, with the medication. Yeah. So, you know, but he's I, coming out of it, right? No, I think so. Yeah. No, as far as I know, he is past that now. But, <clears throat> you know, you're right with all the extremely hypercritical media attention, just really searching for any fault, uh, combined with, uh, you know, your wife's terrible health problems, and then his own health has not been great. All that put together is just uh, absolutely, absolutely terrible, terrible situation. So I really hope that he is able to move forward in a, you know, positive way. What are Peterson's religious beliefs? What does he believe? It's a good question. I'm not sure. As far as I can tell, he is open and still seeking to solidify those. So he said, obviously, many times that he tries to live as if God exists. And I think that's great. I mean, I, I try to live as if God exists, too. And for me, the next question is, well, who then, if God does exist, how then should we think of Jesus of Nazareth? And for me, of course, I answer that question to say, well, Jesus of Nazareth is the fullest revelation of God. So if I live as if God exists, I live as a follower of Jesus. And so then I would say, well, okay, well, if I'm trying to follow Jesus, what does Jesus say about how I should live? And Jesus says things like, you know, you should be baptized. Jesus says things like, if you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you will live forever. Jesus, the way of Jesus, it seems to me, involves, you know, living that out in a in a church, in a community of people following Jesus. So I think the path he's on, um, I think, can definitely lead to a kind of robust commitment to living out a life of faith in the church. But obviously, as you know, Mark, uh, faith is a gift. And so either there's no, you know, someone in a way, an adult is, you know, maybe offered the gift. But it, at the end of the day, the person has to freely accept and, and choose to, to live out that gift. So, you know, where he's going to end up, I don't know. I mean, you know, he's on his own journey. And, you know, I hope it ends up in a, in a great place. So we'll see what happens. Let's make a wager. I say that he, he, he converts to Catholicism in, in the last week of his life. What do you say? <laughs> I wouldn't want to <laughs> wager on anything like that. I, uh, okay. For one thing, I hope he lives a, a super long, uh, oh, yes, healthy yes, life. So yes. I'd hate to see him wait, you know, another uh, 25 years or whatever. And then <laughs> he, he does say, uh, quote, Catholicism is as sane as people can get. What, what does he mean by that? Well, it's funny. When he said that, his daughter uh, jumped in right away and started talking. And so he didn't explain exactly what he meant by that. 
Um, so I don't exactly know. My best guess is that he thinks that Catholicism combines uh, both a care for what you might call the philosophical truth and a kind of poetic imagination. So you might say Catholicism combines in a really rich way right and left brain thinking, the more logical, empirical, scientific way of thinking with the more literary, poetic, uh, beauty-based uh, ways of approaching things. So so I think maybe that was what he's getting at. But as I said, is when he said that quotation, he kind of was his daughter jumped in right away in the, into the conversation. So I don't know exactly how he would have filled that out. And I, I really would love to, to know how he fills that out in a more explicit way. Well, one thing that he believes is that being outside the church has been critical to his success in bringing a lot of people to consider religion in general in, in their lives. Is that, uh, is that true, you think? Um, yeah, I think it is to a degree true. I, I know that on his, uh, in his videos, like his biblical series, if you look in the comments, you find tons of people saying, I'm an atheist and I thought the Bible was just, you know, old stories told by ignorant people, but now I see the insights. And so I think it's true that, that he's really brought a lot of people to reconsider these ultimate questions. Now, could he have done that as a person of faith? I think he could. I mean, think about someone like Bishop Barron. I mean, he certainly helps people, many people, to consider these ultimate questions and move towards uh, embracing a kind of faith. So I don't think it's it's impossible, but I do think that he has a certain credibility as a psychologist, as someone at a secular university, as someone who is not a committed believer, that when he thinks about these questions, I think everyone can appreciate that he's really thinking about it, and he's really um, providing a model then for other people to think about it and to take these questions very seriously. Uh, last question, Chris. How many of those wayward young men whom Peterson has inspired to at least ponder religion, uh, do you think some of them will proceed to enter the church? I mean, is, is, is Peterson going to be an evangel? Yeah, some, some have entered the church. So if you look at these comments, like I did a... Uh, another uh, podcast just a little while ago, and I was looking at the comments there, and there were 75 comments, and probably 20 of them were comments that said, Jordan Peterson either um, brought me back to the church, or Jordan Peterson um, made me move from being an atheist or agnostic to being a Catholic. So there hmm. were at least 20 people in that just little thread that said things like that. So no, I think there's many, many people that are not only considering these great questions, but also coming to a conclusion that the way to move forward towards greater truth, greater beauty, and greater goodness is to live life as a follower of Jesus. The book is Jordan Peterson, God and Christianity, The Search for a Meaningful Life. Professor Kazor, thank you for joining us. Thank you very much, Mark. And thank you for listening to our conversation, which has been supported by Wyoming Catholic College, which combines great books, the Catholic tradition, and the great outdoors of the American West into an extraordinary education. Go to wyomingcatholic.edu or contact the admissions office at 877-332-2930.